Hello, and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed therapist with more than 10 years of experience. And this is Trisha, and I'm sorry, but I just don't have a fun foider today. What is a fun foider? A foider is a riddle or a puzzle. Oh. Just a little brain dead. That's all right. Yeah. We all have those days. It is. It's Sunday. It's been, you know, kind of a rainy weekend and all that kind of stuff. So, um, as Courtney said, welcome to Addicted to Murder. And just to give you our usual social media rundown, Addicted to M podcast on Instagram, Addicted to Murder podcast on Facebook, Addicted to Murder podcast on Twitter, Addicted to Murder podcast at gmail.com. And Courtney and I just recorded and will be releasing very soon our first video that we are um it's on our youtube channel which is addicted to murder podcast we're going to try to get it on twitter and instagram um but as with everything we're learning so we'll see how it goes right yeah and it's a, a new segment uh, where we spotlight certain diagnoses or other things that we kind of talk about in our regular podcasts um and so this is our first one, so please be gentle and kind, mm-hmm. and let us know what you think. Right. This one is going to be about borderline personality disorder, because as we've discussed, Charles Colon most likely has it. Correct. So, okay, so Courtney, do you want to, oh, no, it's question time, and it's Courtney's question. It is. So my question today um, is, Trisha, have you ever met a celebrity, and if so, what was what happened? Um, I mean, I no, not really. Hmm. Um, I mean, I've seen, you know, I I talked to Dennis Dixon at the Ducks games because he was a duck, and then he went on to various pro football teams. So I mean, I guess if you call him a celebrity, but and um, really really weird. But um, uh, when I worked at Pizza Hut, um. Tony Dungy, which was the coach of the Indianapolis Colts and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, But when Peyton Manning was at Indianapolis, he was the coach there. And he must have a kid that goes to the U of O because he would come into Pizza Hut all the time. And never when I was there to sign my Colts cap. But, um, yeah. So that's about it, though. But what about you? Okay. Yeah, so I was lucky enough – So I went to this little tiny college called Alfred University, which is in the middle of nowhere in upstate New York. Um, But the town right next to it, Hornell, is the hometown of actor Bill Pullman, um, best known for his roles in, you know, Independence Day and Spaceballs. And he has a new show right now um, on that we're watching, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he's pretty awesome. Yeah. But um, because he grew up there, he's also a trustee of the university. And so one year while I was there, he came and he ran um, basically like a free like acting mm-hmm. seminar class thing that I was able to participate in. So I got to meet Bill Pullman and get acting tips from him. Is he as nice as he seems? He was so nice. So okay. down to earth. Yeah. The local hospital has its maternity wing named after his mother because he donated the money for it. Oh, he's yeah. a really awesome. He was like a really, really nice guy. I've legit had this conversation with Chris that he seems like he'd be a nice guy in real life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's kind of random. <laughs> so yeah. all right, that's my celebrity encounter. Hey, it's, you know, that's pretty cool. 
Um, do you want to go over the overview? Yes. So here we are. We're on Charlie Cullen part three. So in parts one and two, we talked about his horrific upbringing, um, his multiple suicide attempts, losing both of his parents at a young age. Um, and we had left off in part two where he had gone to nursing school. He'd gotten a job as a nurse. He was a stalker mm-hmm. for one of his coworkers, and he has started murdering people at uh, his hospitals. With insulin at this point. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. And he just was sent to a psychiatric ward after another suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, the hospital that he was working for, that his coworker that he got the stalking order or um, restraining order against, she got one against him, was also working there. Like, it's just crazy that they wanted him back. And they legit called him while he was still at the psychiatric hospital um, wanting him to come back. So that's where we left off. Yes. And I'm just going to do a quick overview really quick. It's called, it's about provider credentialing and it is in place now. So this kind of stuff that we're going over should happen much less frequently. Um, way back in the day, there had been cases of all sorts of providers who didn't disclose their, their past, or sometimes they would say they were doctors and they never really went to medical school. I mean, all sorts of stuff happened. Stuff like this with Charlie Cullen happened. Um, but nowadays there is teams um, responsible in hospital settings and in other healthcare settings to fully vet the people they are hiring. They do background checks. They actually call and talk to um, previous employers and get detailed information so that this kind of thing where they were just like neutral references, verified employment, um, and that was it, wouldn't happen anymore. There are certain things that um, are now being done that this should not happen anymore. So rest assured <laughs> that there are there are, uh, there are pieces in place now to help prevent this from happening. Unfortunately for all these people, those pieces were not in place back then. So here we go. So we're now picking up from uh, where Charlie is back at work after his stint in the psychiatric facility at a hospital where he had been killing patients and had a restraining order against him from a fellow co-worker. September 1st, 1993, Helen Dean was about to be released from Warren Hospital after successful breast cancer surgery. Her loving son, Larry, had been with her the whole process. This is what Charlie said prompted him to choose her as his victim, um, the whole mother-son relationship. Larry recalls he was at his mother's side when a male nurse entered the room. Larry had never met this nurse before, and this nurse was wearing all white instead of all blue like the other nurses from the unit usually wore. The nurse told Larry to leave the room. Larry did. And when Larry returned 10 minutes later, his mother was very upset. She told him, quote, he stuck me. Larry looked through the magnifying glass on his Swiss Army knife at his mother's thigh, mother's thigh sorry, and saw a needle mark. He called the doctor, who said it was probably a bug bite. The next day, however, Helen got very sick. She was sweating and tired, and eventually her heart stopped, and she could not be revived. Larry was devastated and determined to find out answers. He questioned his mother's oncologist, who told him Helen was not scheduled for any injections that day. The nurses on staff told him the male nurse he was referring to was Charles Cullen. 
Larry then called the Warren County prosecutor. He told them that his mother had been murdered at the hospital. And he also told them Charlie's, Charles Cullen was the one who had done it. So there was no doubt in his mind. Um, after this incident, Charlie figured it was only a matter of time before they figured out what he had done. So the next day at work, um, he had meetings with doctors and Warren administrators and even two people from the prosecuting major crime investigation unit. Charlie just denied everything. They searched his locker at work and tested the injection, injection site on Helen Dean's thigh for over 100 hazardous chemicals, but they did not test for digoxin. That is his new drug of choice. Calls it Dig. Um, Dig was Charlie's new thing. Digoxin is a drug that is used to treat heart failure. Charlie gave three times the normal amount of digoxin to the patient and that didn't need it, so it killed her. And because they didn't test for it and found no other evidence of chemicals in her body, they ruled it a natural death. So for whatever reason, they tested for all sorts of things, but not that. Charlie was put on indefinite paid leave, however, so he got paid to not work. He thought this might be okay, getting paid to do nothing, but as per usual, he got depressed. He attempted suicide again and called the ambulance himself. Charlie did agree uh, during this time to do a polygraph test, and he passed it. Um, he, in the book that we've been reading, um, he basically said he knew a lot about EKG, worked in a hospital. He understood what the spikes meant, the P waves meant, the QRS waves, and he knew how to manipulate it just because he knew how it, how it responded to the body. And so he thought the investigators still thought him guilty, but there wasn't enough evidence to do anything about it. So Courtney, what do you think about this? He was motivated to kill this patient because of the relationship he had with his mother, also, Charlie said the polygraph was easy to manipulate. Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah. So, you know, something we've seen with the other serial killers is that it's common to have a victim type that represents somebody from their past who was involved in their trauma or their perceived mistreatment. Um, for example, Ted Bundy liked college girls with dark brown hair parted down the middle. Um, for Charlie, it almost seems like his type isn't so much an individual, but related to the setting of being in a hospital, which he blamed for his mother's death and for not allowing him to see her when she died. Um, and so by killing hospital patients, he could, in his own way, get the experience of being there when his victims died and knowing why, and also punish the hospital by using their drugs and increasing their fatality rate. Um, Interesting. And now in this particular case, there does seem to be that added layer of perhaps jealousy of the positive relationship that Larry had with his mother. Mm -hmm. um, so in this particular case, there's sort of extra victim typing. Well, or going with what you said, um, this son actually got to see his mother's body after she died. That's true. I mean, That's so true. interesting. Yeah. And then as for the, the polygraph, right? Um, Charlie having that medical knowledge would, you know, definitely make it easier for him to fool the detector. Um, and as we've talked about before, they're not that hard to fool. Um, and they're not that reliable as a source of who's lying and who's not. Mm -hmm. um, and so in addition to that medical knowledge, you know, Charlie, having spent a lot of time in psychiatric hospitals and treatment, probably also learned a lot of things like relaxation techniques that could make it even easier to control his heart rate. True. 
Charlie did not go back to that job. He decided to find a new one, and nothing else came from Warren's hospital investigation. <clears throat> Charlie's next job was at Hunterton Hospital in Flemingtown, New Jersey. He listed both St. Barnabas and Warren Hospital as references. He got the job and, again, got an increase in pay. Um, at first, he did great at this new position. He was a dream nurse. Everyone loved him. Basically, at all of the hospitals he worked at, he was happy to work on weekends, nights, holidays. He was working like 75 hours a week. So, you know, everybody wants someone like that on staff. But at some point in 1995, about a year after he started, Charlie changed. He started to act oddly and his coworkers noticed. Charlie reflected later that he doesn't really know how many killed at this hospital, but he thinks it was at least six people. They all would have been lethally injected while he was working in the ICU. Charlie's nurse supervisor started noticing his medication errors and that he would not document them in his patient's charts. So during this time, Charlie had met a friend named Kathy. He did his normal thing where he idolized her and put her on a great pedestal. When Kathy went back to her husband, Charlie was very hurt. This pain fueled his need to act, and this may be what, was, uh, what it was that had driven him to start killing patients again. So Charlie's supervisor gave Charlie an ultimatum. One more screw up and he would be fired. Charlie told his supervisor he would just quit then. He then stormed out of the hospital, went home, and wrote a strongly worded resignation letter telling the hospital they could keep the 170 hours of vacation he had accrued because, you know, that would show them. After he mailed the letter, though, he had second thoughts because he needed the money. But they accepted his resignation, um, but they still allowed him to remain as a uh, on-call nurse. They did actually try to call him in again, but Charlie ignored the phone calls. Playing his head games with the hospital, I suppose. Now that they wanted him back, he wasn't going to give them the pleasure. And eventually they stopped calling him. <clears throat> Excuse me. In October of 1996, Charlie applied to Morristown Memorial Hospital. They checked his employment history and they called to verify references. They did find some discrepancies in the dates he provided, but they hired him anyways. That job didn't last very long. He did not really seem to try. He made obvious medication errors, didn't clean his patients, and he was actually fired after a year, not for killing patients, but for poor nursing practices. He is not sure how many he had intentionally killed at this hospital. Just doesn't keep track. So the straw that broke the camel's back was when he ignored orders to give at this hospital a patient um, heparin. He was supposed to give them heparin. He just didn't do it at all. The patient subsequently died. So Charlie told administrators that it was an accident, but his history has shown it to be otherwise. And when the hospital refused to bring him back on staff, he attempted suicide. Charlie again was transferred to the Greystone Psychiatric Hospital. Courtney, Charlie seeming, is seemingly taking all, taking out all of his hurts um, by outside parties on patients. He doesn't seem to care who they are. Do you think this is some, court, some sort of control lust? Charlie is way different from other killers we've covered. What do you want to explore about his mental state, his motivations, his culpability, etc.? So Charlie gave a few different explanations for how he chose his victims, including wanting to you know, spare them the indignity of a code, um, wanting to free them from suffering, um, and it is noted that he often chose elderly patients who had a do not resuscitate order um, because, you know, then people aren't going to try to save them. Um, so Charlie struggled with severe depression for most of his life, as we've seen, and he made comments about believing that life is essentially meaningless. 
Um, and so this belief that life has no meaning could definitely be used by him to justify killing because being alive or dead doesn't matter. Right? And additionally, you know, control is certainly a characteristic of Charlie's killing style. And, you know, for a person who was essentially at the mercy of the people who abused, bullied, or just flat out ignored him for most of his life, the ultimate act of control is playing God over who lives or dies. And again, you know, I think it's important to point out that Charlie was not careful in covering his tracks. He, by this point, was making obvious errors that should have got him caught, fired, and arrested. So... He wanted somebody to notice him and to notice what he was doing and to care enough to stop him. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the very least, if they thought it was just negligence, it still should have been reported to the nursing board. And he still should have had his license taken away. Absolutely. Or at least reprimanded. Absolutely. Okay, so he kind of burnt out most of the hospitals in his area of New Jersey, so he moved to Pennsylvania. Fun fact, did you know Pennsylvania is called that because its founder was named William Penn, and it was founded for um, Quakers? I actually did know that. Oh, okay. Well, now everybody else knows. <laughs> yes. Uh, so Charlie was able to get a Pennsylvania nursing license, no problem. He got a job at Liberty Nursing and Rehab Center of Allentown, Pennsylvania. When HR verified employment and checked references... Morristown Memorial, the hospital that had actually fired him for incompetence and negligence, confirmed the employment. Said nothing else. Hunterton Hospital, who threatened to fire Charlie prior to him resigning, gave the reference which said Charlie was, quote, an excellent nurse, gave good care, was excellent with patients. At this time, Charlie was over 66000 in debt. So when he got divorced, his child support and alimony payments were based on 75 hours per week which I think is messed up because whatever, but family court's not anything we're going to talk about. But because of this, um, he was always needing money. So uh, let's see. There was a patient in this rehab facility that was convalescing after a broken neck injury. For some reason, Charlie decided to give this patient a giant amount of insulin. So we're back to insulin again. So much insulin that the patient began to have violent seizures. And remember, this guy had a broken neck. The patient died the next day. So this was just one of the many incidents that had occurred while Char Charlie was at this rehab facility. This particular one rehab facility did launch an internal investigation. But somehow, even though Charlie was under suspicion, his co-worker was fired for the death. Charlie was reassigned to the psychiatric unit, but kept his job at Liberty. October 1st of that year, Charlie attempted to administer mysterious medications to a patient that was not his. She was really feisty, and she fought him off. Um, unfortunately, Charlie broke her wrist, but saved her life. Charlie was fired for not following drug protocol. Not for breaking wrists, but whatever. But don't worry, he landed another job two days later. Easton Hospital in Easton, Pennsylvania. So at this hospital, the child of one of Charlie's victims actually requested an autopsy. She was sure that a nurse at the hospital had overdosed her father of digoxin, which was not even in his standing orders. The toxicology of his blood work confirmed that. Charlie pushed back on this grieving woman when she said she wanted an autopsy, but she remained firm. An internal investigation was launched after the autopsy, but ultimately it too was determined to be a natural death. 
Charlie decided to, you know, vamoose away from Easton. It wasn't really his scene anyways. Before he even, um, excuse me, before he even resigned, he had a new job, a new job lined up at Lehigh Valley Hospital. This new hospital had a Pixis machine. So that's basically a vending machine for medications, right? So it replaces like human pharmacists or other systems that might be in place to get the drugs. So Charlie worked primarily at the burn unit in this hospital, and he worked there for 16 months. He had no idea how many he killed during this time. He was bullied by his coworkers here, or rather they made it known that they thought he was weird and that he didn't belong. He said this helped motivate him to commit so many murders, and when he killed someone, he said he felt like he was in control. Charlie felt very depressed during this time, so he again attempted suicide, but in a different way from his usual pill swallowing, he actually bought a small barbecue or hibachi charcoal grill and put it in the bathtub. He filled it with charcoal and lit it. He got drunk and got into the bathtub with the grill, waiting for the end to come by fumes, I guess. Um, the fumes, however, prompted a neighbor to call the fire department. He answered the door, um, let them in. He was then taken to the emergency room for the 72-hour suicide hold that was now commonplace for him. So, Courtney, this suicide attempt actually seems more legit than the others. Apparently, Charlie had taken down the smoke alarm, and he had jammed towels under the bathroom door to keep the smoke and fumes in. He said he put the hibachi in the bathtub so he wouldn't start a fire because of his work. He knew what burn victims suffered. What do you think? And also, are we seeing that Charlie's motive ultimately is just control? I know we keep talking about this, but he's just such an enigma. So I want to note that all of Charlie's suicide attempts should be taken seriously, um, and that the desire to die, even if the means of the attempt was less dangerous, was very real and intense for Charlie. He also showed again and again that he regretted his attempts and ultimately wanted to get help after each one by either telling someone or calling 911 himself or, you know, doing the action in front of others. And so the decision to try suffocation by smoke inhalation could have been inspired by his time in the barn unit um, and also could have been a way of, you know, maybe subconsciously or purposefully ensuring that he would be found and rescued. You know, he was living alone at this time, so if he just overdosed, um, you know, nobody would know or find him um, unless he reported himself, so he'd be more likely to die without being found. But, you know, filling an apartment bathroom with smoke would be very likely to be noticed by others in the building, which, you know, would then increase the likelihood of his survival. And so looking at his multiple suicide attempts, along with his murders, I think it's safe to say that Charlie very much wants to stay in control, you know, in control of when and how he makes an attempt, in control of when and how he is rescued, in control of who knows and doesn't know what's really happening. Okay, well, Charlie couldn't handle the way the nurses treated him at Lehigh, so he left and found employment at St. Luke's Hospital in nearby Fountain Hill. And St. Luke's even threw in a $5,000 signing bonus for him. St. Luke's Hospital at the time was ranked as one of the country's best hospitals. Uh, Coats did start to increase at the hospital, though, after he was hired, and Charlie was usually the first to arrive at a code when it was called. He also found a new love interest at this hospital, Julie was her name, and he started to leave her little gifts from a Brian Flynn. 
This was his alias. There was no Brian Flynn that worked in the hospital. Julie was delighted to have an admirer. Um, when he finally admitted to her that he was Brian Flynn, he did not the get <clears throat> he did not get the reaction he wanted. The males on staff laughed at him, and the women <clears throat> sorry, and the women were fearful of him. One evening, Charlie was called in because a very sick woman was transferred to St. Luke's from another facility. Now, apparently, they transferred this patient to keep their mortality rate low at the other facility. They called it a dump patient, meaning like there was no hope. This patient was going to die. Uh, so transfer from one facility to another. So the former, um, yeah, sorry. It's messed up. It happens. I've heard of this happening around here. But it's a numbers game when it comes to hospitals. They need their stats to look good. I've even heard of it happening interdepartmentally in hospitals. So, like, if a patient is for sure going to die in surgery, they might wheel them out into another unit so the death doesn't happen in the surgical ward. So it looks like their surgeries are, you know, a higher percent of success than they might really be. Um, anyhow, Charlie went ahead and gave this woman an overdose of digoxin, then waited for the code to be called. Then he ran to the victim, performed valiant life-saving uh, CPR measures, which, of course, failed. He was then sent home. It was his only patient that he was called in for, and she just died, so you can go home now. And he went and worked on a project he wanted to do anyways. Charlie did not like St. Luke's, so he started to throw away drugs. He just wanted um, someone to notice. So along with killing patients, he started to toss things in the hospital, toss out things in the hospital inventory. He wanted to cost the hospital money. So remember, he hated hospitals. So Vicronian bromide, or VEC, I'm sure I said that wrong, is a strong paralytic. The muscles in the body stop working, but the brain doesn't. So if you were overdosed with, with VEC, you would be completely unable to move or communicate, but would be totally cognizant mentally. The nurses at the hospital one day found a sharps container full of vials of VEC, but no one on the floor had been, had been prescribed that. Charlie was now torturing patients with this drug. Courtney, can you even imagine? I had a friend who got botulism once and had to go through something like this for a couple months, and she said it was pure hell. She was completely paralyzed, but able to hear and see everything that went on. That sounds horrifying. Right. By this point, nurses knew it was Charlie. He would disappear into the med room, and sometime later he would leave it, and the Sharps container would be full of spent vials of medications. Of course, police were not called. Risk management was, and they started an investigation. Basically, all they did was question Charlie, who denied any knowledge of the incident, and then he resigned. He knew if he resigned and was not fired, he would get a neutral reference from St. Luke's. Three days later, he was pulling up to his shift at Sacred Heart Hospital in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Anything you want to share, Courtney? How about him torturing patients with VEC or throwing away meds to make the hospital lose money? You know, Charlie doesn't really fit the profile of, like, a sadist who enjoys the suffering of others. Um, so the idea of him torturing patients with that to me doesn't really make sense um but I would maybe guess that his use of the VEC was more practical you know after the incident um, with the patient who fought back and had her wrist broken you know Charlie may have started using the VEC to subdue his victims um kind of in order to prevent something like that from happening again and I could be wrong about this of course but that's just kind of my perception of things um as for just dumping and wasting meds, I think this served two purposes for Charlie. On the one hand, it was a way of punishing the hospital system that he hated so much. 
And on the other hand, it was again a very obvious cry for attention and for somebody to stop him. He was pretty blatant about the way he was just wasting the medication. Right. Um, so yeah, that makes sense if he, if the, you know, torture from the vec wasn't what he was going for. It was just to prevent a fight. <laughs> so he would vec them and then he would ditch them. <laughs> Maybe. You know, that could be it. So after a week on his new job, he had a new girlfriend, another Kathy. Um, she was also a new hire. Charlie again was in love and moving fast. Two weeks later, he got the now familiar employer phone call telling him not to come in for any more shifts. So, um, you know, oh, in this situation, though, apparently one of the nurses at Sacred Heart had worked with Charlie at one of the other hospitals and had told administration about him. A bunch of the nurses threatened to quit if Charlie didn't go. So Charlie moved in with Kathy two months later. And on August 15, 2002, Charlie was hired at Somerset Medical Center in New Jersey. So he went back to New Jersey. He made a good friend at this new hospital, Amy Lohren, L-O-U-G-H-R-E-N. Amy had a medical condition that made it difficult for her to get through her shifts at times, so Charlie would step in and help her. Um, he'd like, tell her to take naps or you know breaks, and he would take care of her patients. During this time when Amy was especially ill, Charlie began killing patients. Charlie now says he has no idea how many he killed at Somerset, but it was a lot. So what he would also do was make him out, himself out to be a hero because sometimes when a patient coded because of a drug he administered, he would suggest an antidote that made him seem like a genius and then the patient would be revived. So some of these patients didn't die but were brought to the brink and then back by the same man. All right, so Charlie did in a man named Reverend Florian Gall. Toxicology reports showed that he died with a massive amount of digoxin in his bloodstream. This was, an in, in, this was an intentional death, and the hospital had started to keep track of these. In fact, this was patient number four that they were suspecting had been murdered by someone who worked there. The hospital decided to do their own investigation. They did not want to involve the authorities, and they basically put it on their pharmacy department to figure it out. Assistant pharmacist Nancy Dory was to contact New Jersey Poison Control because they needed help with the math. Um, they needed to figure out how much didge would equal this amount in the body, which equal blah, 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 right? So finally, this is where the shit starts to hit the fan. Poison Control was working with Nancy to figure out numbers and such, but she was hesitant to actually relay you know, everything that was going on. The Poison Control person that was contacted was Dr. Bruce Ruck. He basically had to pull teeth to get Nancy to outline the entire problem. But when she did, he knew that there was indeed a problem. A murderer was working at Somerset Hospital. He insisted they involve the police. There was no way that the data they gave him could compute to natural deaths. Four people at least had died there, and, and the death, deaths were intentional. They had, to be, they had to be based on the amount of types of drugs in their systems. Uh, when Somerset refused to get anyone involved beyond their attorneys and conduct their own investigation, the poison control director got involved as well. So the Poison Control Center actually recorded many of the conversations they had with various members of the Somerset staff. You can find these um, uh, like scripts in the Good Nurse book we're talking about. They have them written out there. It's fascinating. Um, it really makes Somerset look like a huge asshole of a hospital. They were dragging their feet for so long to involve law enforcement. They were basically doing nothing to protect patients. They were just trying to protect their ass. Charlie was still working, even though he was on their shortlist of suspects. 
They were so worried about lawsuits and reputation damage that they allowed more murders to occur. They had proof, verified by poison control, that four of their patients were intentionally killed and they didn't have the culprit yet. It was only after the staff at Somerset were told that all of their phone calls had been recorded did they let the Department of Health know something was going on, basically because they had no choice. Um, poison control had said if they didn't do it, they would do it themselves, and it would look a hell of a lot worse if the hospital didn't call it in on their own. This finally got the ball rolling, and state police were finally contacted to do an investigation. It took two months, two months of the hospital dragging their feet, two months of Charlie ruthlessly murdering countless victims, two months that could have been avoided. So the hospital already suspected Charlie in these deaths, as I said. They had indicated as much in the paperwork that the police had received, the very incomplete paperwork. The hospital still wasn't really cooperating. In fact, they told them a huge lie. They told the investigators that the, the Pixis machine, the one that dispensed meds, only held the past 30 days of act uh, excuse me 30 days of activity and unfortunately because it took so long to start the investigation there wouldn't be any information for them to retrieve about the four patients that had passed the hospital also used a male phlebotomist as a red herring to throw them off even further the investigators found nothing on the sky but on charles cullen there were multiple hits and even one paper file from a previous hospital that had a sticky note attached the sticky note said Dijoxin. The investigators on the case now started to look at Charlie's employment history, requesting HR records and stuff. At St. Barnabas, they got a very incomplete file, but it had enough information to show that Charlie had been written up for all sorts of things. At Warren Hospital, Charlie's records could not be located. Hunterton Hospital also could not locate Charlie Cullen's files. And the file at St. Luke's just said Charlie Charles resigned and would not consider for rehire. Medication issue. By this time, the police learned that Somerset had called Poison Control for help with the numbers. After speaking with the helpful staff at Poison Control and learning that all of their conversations had been taped, they also learned that Poison Control had told the hospital to call the police four months prior. So really, it wasn't two months to involve the police. It was four months if you go back to when the beginning of the suspicion of murder occurred. Here's a quote between the two investigators when they found out how long it took the hospital to report the incidents. Quote, what kills me? This guy is working right now. And then his partner responded, quote, if that's going to change, we're going to have to start leaning harder on hospitals. Response, quote, that and start pulling bodies out of the ground. So I just want to give huge props to these two lead investigators. Um, they knew nothing about medical when they were reading charts and medications they didn't know what they were reading it was all greek to them um, or latin um, but they just knew something was going on and they were determined to get the bottom of it their names were timothy braun and danny baldwin it's about time right <laughs> courtney i've talked for a long time do you want to say anything just that i'm really infuriated with seeing this pattern of hospitals just passing the buck right and then when they finally do get backed into a corner they're not being cooperative. They're lying. Yeah, they're withholding information. They're withholding information. On October 31st, 2003, Charlie Cullen was finally fired from Somerset Medical Center. Mind you, after he completed his whole shift. So there you have it. Charlie was finally fired four months and 24 days after he was originally suspected of murdering patients. Braun 
eventually decided to do some Googling on the Pixis machine, he knew that was the key. If they could just get the records of the medicines dispensed while the deaths were occurring, they might get a much better you know, picture of what was happening. So he called the manufacturer of Pixis and asked if there was any way that information from six months back could be retrieved, as it was a matter of great urgency, and he was a cop. The guy on the phone was super confused. He was like, there's no 30-day 30 30 window. All records are accessible at any time for as far back as the machine is old. Just pull it up. Is there something wrong with your machine? That's what he asked him. So, cop is furious, goes back to the hospital and demands the records of, um, you know, the Pixis for the, for the time period they need it, threatens them with obstruction of justice charges. That did it. They finally got the report. Okay, so this is dragging on. Eventually, the cops work with Amy, you know, Charlie's friend. They showed her the Pixis printouts to get her take, because to them, they don't, it's, like I said, they don't know what they're looking at. And no one at the hospital was cooperating with them or helping them. So she helped confirm their suspicions. The amounts and types of medications that Charlie had pulled from the machine were off the charts high. She also wondered why the cops didn't have the Kerner data or Cerner data. Uh, it's their EHR system, so basically the hospital records. Um, but they didn't have any of that data because they didn't know that data existed because the hospital didn't offer it up as any sort of evidence. Time was running out because Charlie landed a new job in December that year. Um, so really he was going to start somewhere new soon. And so they were like, we got to get this guy before he starts somewhere else. Amy agreed to help the police get a confession out of Charlie because at this point, after all the data, um, she was convinced that her friend Charlie was murdering patients. So Amy wore a wire. Uh, they went out. Um, and basically she told Charlie that she was being looked at as a suspect in the mysterious deaths. And she was really worried that she was going to get in trouble, lose her job. She has a kid, blah, blah, blah. Because of all this, he did confessed, uh, confess. He confessed to what he knew, but he really could not say how many people he had killed. In April of 2004, Charlie pled guilty to 16 murders and two attempted murders in New Jersey. He pled guilty to six murders and two attempted murders in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. He is currently serving 18 life sentences. Um, now, when people really looked into it, they have speculated he could be responsible for up to 400 murders. Right. So, Courtney, go ahead. Just that that number is staggering because it should have stopped at one. Mm -hmm. um, because of this atrocity in 2005, a supplement was added to the Patient Safety Act that requires hospitals to report certain details to the New Jersey. Oh my goodness, to the New Jersey Division of Consumer Affairs. This is just one state, though. Um, there's probably all sorts of things um, that have changed since then. I told you how provider credentialing is now kind of a necessity if you want to get like joint commission accreditation or you know all of those types of things, and that's part of it. Um, I did find that there were many civil suits filed against these hospitals. I found that many were thrown out. Um, some may have gone to trial. I couldn't find a whole lot on you know, what ended up happening. I'm sure there's gag orders and blah, 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 but. Yeah. I, I know that money does not in any way bring back victims or, you know, represent true justice, but I hope that those hospitals had to 
pay out of their ass. Right. When they're intentionally covering up because, for whatever reason, right? I mean, I get that people make mistakes. There's a difference between negligence and then there's a difference between murder. And, um, (laughs) right. So when, I don't know, you guys can decide for yourself, but this just, this whole thing blows me away. Here we have a, a very obviously sick, mentally ill person in and out of psychiatric facilities, um, constant job turnover, um, constant suicide attempts, restraining orders, restraining or yeah, not trying really to cover their tracks. And he's just gone. He went for like 16 years, right? Nine different hospitals. And he could have been stopped after that very first one where he injected insulin into a heparin drip. Mm -hmm. Right. So anyways, that is our our, uh, conclusion. Sorry, that took me a minute on Charlie Cullen. Very different. Very different. Way different motivations. Um, I don't like this guy, but for some reason, I don't hate him as much as BTK. I don't know. It just doesn't rub me. I don't know. Maybe because he's not a narcissist. When you watch, he did do a 60 Minutes interview, and in fact, it was the first interview that 60 Minutes had ever conducted with a serial killer. Um, And if you watch it, you can find it on YouTube. He's very quiet, very meek, very unassuming, um, seeming, seemingly very confused when he's like, I don't know why it took them so long to catch me. I don't know. What do you think? You saw it with me. Yeah. I mean, he definitely came across as someone who is still very depressed. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't look at the camera. Yeah. You know, he didn't pimp and preen nope. like some of the other, you know, killers have. I think he just really was and is just a very, very unwell person mm-hmm. who, in all the very, very wrong ways, cried out for help and didn't get it. Right. All right. Well, it's sad. I'm kind of feeling a little sad right now. Um, sometimes I end these things feeling really, really angry. But mm-hmm. on this one, I'm just kind of sad, so... More angry at the hospital right. than I am at Charlie himself. Yeah. Which may not be fair. Right. But. Yeah. Well, um, Courtney picks our next case. Do you want to give them a clue? Um, I'm going to say we're bringing it back to the West Coast. That's okay. all I'm going to say. It's where a lot of them hang out, it seems like. It, yes, it is. <laughs> okay. Well, um, please like, listen, follow, subscribe, comment, all of that good stuff. Um, It really motivates us to keep going, and we appreciate all that you do. Yes, we do. All right. See you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.